So uh, for the last few weeks, we've spent our time together unpacking some pretty foundational questions, questions like, who is God? And because of who God is, well, who, who does that make me? We've said that there are passages in the scriptures that describe the qualities of God. Uh, but as we dig into this foundational study of who God is, past his qualities and into his character and nature, what we see is that at his core, God is a family on a mission, that he is father and son and spirit. And he is all of these three beings in one working together in perfect unity to restore the relationship that he had with his creation that was fractured in the garden at the beginning. Understanding the nature of God's identity is helpful for us and important for us because it is a reminder that we were not created by a solo act. No, we were not created by a solo act to be solo acts ourselves. We were created by a family for a family. Last week can be summarized in essentially two words. The word covenant and the word kingdom. We said that God created us uh, to have a relationship with him and the kind of relationship that he desires to have with us is covenantal, meaning that we agree to certain standards or expectations and make specific promises one to the other. And from the beginning of the Bible, God has consistently pursued a relationship with humanity by establishing covenants with us. And we said the new covenant established by Jesus wove us into God's family, that we became his children and he became our father. But we said that it was even greater than that, even, even better than that. Not only was God our father, but because of this covenant relationship with him, like our father just so happens to be the king of the universe. And so he is our father, yes, 100%, but he is also our king. When we say yes to a covenant relationship with God, he becomes our father, but he is also our king. And with that comes the responsibility to represent the king and his kingdom well. And he sends his Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can do precisely that, represent the king and his kingdom well. But here's the question, kind of the idea that I want to tackle this morning. If God is, in fact, a family on a mission, and Jesus is our way of seeing what God is really like, shouldn't we expect to see family on mission as the pattern for Jesus' ministry as well? If, if God is, in fact, a family on a mission, and Jesus is our way of seeing and understanding God most accurately, wouldn't it stand to reason then that Jesus' pattern for ministry should be that of building a family on a mission? And so that's a question I want to answer today. Do we see Jesus build a family on a mission? And this is such a foundational question for this reason. This question gets to the heart of how Jesus did things. You see, healthy disciples, disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, we know the words of Jesus. We do the works of Jesus. But we also imitate the ways of Jesus. We, do the, we know the words of Jesus. 
We do the works of Jesus, but we also imitate the ways of Jesus. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat it. We're going to have the verses on the screens for you. Uh, But when we turn there into Mark chapter 3, we're going to see a couple interesting scenes. First, you'll find that as the chapter begins, Jesus is performing an act of miraculous healing on the Sabbath, a day that good Jews didn't do anything at all. See, Jesus took a man's shriveled and gnarled hand, and he spoke a word of healing over it, and the man's hand was instantly completely restored. What's more is the fact that Jesus was performing an act that was traditionally uh, reserved for religious leaders, not for carpenters. You see, you didn't go to guys like Jesus for healing or for blessings or for prayers. You went to the religious professionals. And so by verse 6 of chapter 3, we're told that the Pharisees are already determined to put an end to this whole Jesus thing. They're ready to put an end to this Jesus guy. The next scene is similar. A giant crowd is now following Jesus. And the crowd is so large that, that the people pressed against Jesus at literally every side. The crowd was so suffocating uh, that we're told in the scriptures that his disciples were instructed to ready a boat for him while he healed the people of their diseases and drove out the unclean spirits. The third scene that we see in Mark chapter 3 is Jesus walking up the side of a, of a mountain and calling specific men to be his disciples. He chose 12 to work with him in this ministry to preach and to cast out demons. From there we get the fourth scene, and this is the one that we're going to focus our attention on this morning. Uh, it begins in verse 20, and it reads this way. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now think about this. Jesus has just started his public ministry, but it's already so controversial and so unorthodox that the religious leaders are ready to kill him, ready to put him to death. We're only three chapters into Mark's Mark's gospel and, and... the Pharisees are ready to talk about Jesus in the past tense. His family, they, they think that he's nuts, that he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, that he's gone off his rocker. Now, why in the world would they think this? Well, they would think it, uh, that he's lost his mind for a couple reasons. One, uh, Jesus kind of left the family business, right? Dad was a carpenter. He was you know, schooled you know, as a carpenter, but that's not what he's doing anymore. And in this culture, you don't really just leave the family business. So that's one reason. But also, like we said a second ago, the religious leaders hate him. Okay? And the religious leaders in this time, in this era, in this culture, like these are the most respected men in, in town. Okay? And, and they hate him. They're ready to put him to, to death. They're plotting his demise. So that's uh, concerning for his family. But then, like to just kind of top it off, he's got crowds of sick and crazy people literally smothering him. And everywhere he goes, he has social outcasts of every stripe following him. These are all understandable reasons for their concern, to be sure. They were probably embarrassed and a little bit frustrated with him. And that's when the uh, 
religious leaders chime in. Verse 22, it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. He's doing amazing things. I think it's interesting that they don't, uh, they don't debate this. They don't argue it. We just think that he's possessed by a demon and that's how he's doing it. Jesus' teaching on this particular subject is absolutely fascinating. He says that Satan is not going to try to drive out Satan because houses that are divided among themselves cannot stand. They will inevitably fall. And he goes on to say that those who persist on attributing to Satan what God is clearly doing are condemning themselves. They are literally cutting themselves off from the very thing that can save them, the Holy Spirit of God given through Jesus Christ. This is where I want to focus our attention this morning. You see, too often, these next few verses, they get skipped over, they get overlooked because we're so fascinated and focused on the sensational teaching that we just read. Verse 31 says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told them, sorry, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now just think about this for a second. Okay, Jesus has just presented this masterful, thought-provoking teaching on sin and forgiveness, and someone calls out to him, Hey, Jesus, your family's here. And apparently this raises an important question in Jesus' mind because he says this in verse 33. He says, uh, who are my mother and brothers? Now, how, how would you answer this particular question? What makes someone your family? Most people would tell you that it's, it's about your DNA or it's about the people that you sit around the table with uh, and eat Thanksgiving dinner, or it's about the, the people that you share a street address with. But Jesus, as is going to be clear in a second, has something different in mind. He has a different criteria in his head. Verse 34 says this, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, can you imagine, just just time out for one second. Can you imagine coming up to your mama and telling her, hey, cornbread was delicious. Thanks for all the you know, trips to the emergency room and all the band-aids and you know, all the good night kisses, but I've found a new mama. Have a good one. Can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine, just think with me for a second, can you imagine sitting across the dining room table from your grandma and your grandpa and saying, Graham, Graham, Pop, Pop, thanks for all the Christmas presents. Again, you guys have been great, but I've got a new family now. Peace. Now, here's the deal. Like, when I first read this, like, it reminded me of Home Alone, like the Christmas movie. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, you got Kevin McAllister, and he's a real twerpy little thing. And, you know, him and his brother Buzz, they get into this argument, uh, and Kevin gets in trouble. He gets caught because, again, Buzz is terrible. And Kevin gets kind of condemned to the third floor, right? He has to go up there, and 
mom goes up there and he's like, I'm sorry. But she knows that it's just, he's faking, right? He's just trying to get out of spending the night on the third floor. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh, you're up. He's like, I hate this family. And remember what she says? Well, maybe you should just ask Santa for a new family. Like that's, this is childish kind of stuff, right? Oh, I've got a new family. This is, this is the kind of stuff you'd expect from Kevin McAllister, not the kind of stuff you'd expect from Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? This is the kind of thing that kids say to be mean or hurtful, and thank goodness most of them grow out of it. This isn't something you'd expect from Jesus. It's unsettling when we read it through this lens. About this passage, N.T. Wright, who is one of my favorite Bible scholar says this. He says, in Jesus' world, this was scandalous, as it would still be in some places. The family bond was tight and long-lasting. As with many non-Western cultures today, it was normal for children to live close to parents, maybe even in the same house. For Jews, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment is establishing a much different foundation for what makes a family a family than anyone at the time would have believed. At that time, it would have been about your DNA or it would have been about your, uh, your occupation, your job. It would have been about where you lived. Those were the kind of things that made you a family in Jesus' day. But what he speaks into in in his kingdom, it's totally different. What makes you a family in Jesus' kingdom is obedience to the Father. William Barclay notes this. He says, true kinship lies in common obedience. The disciples were a very mixed group. All kinds of beliefs and opinions were mixed among them. A tax collector like Matthew and a fanatical nationalist like Simon the Zealot ought to have hated each other like poison, and no doubt at one time they did. But they were bound together because both had accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. Jesus came and he established a new kind of family. His disciples were not just his work partners or his fishing buddies or his lackeys or his gophers. They were his family. For Jesus, making disciples was about building a family. Remember, Jesus came to earth representing a heavenly divine family with the mission of building an earthly one. And here's the thing. So The way that Jesus goes about making disciples, building this earthly family, this new kind of family, is remarkable in its simplicity. In John chapter 1, we are reminded that uh, John the Baptist is out preaching and uh, when uh, he's baptizing and when he turned and saw Jesus, remember what he said? He said, look, the Lamb of God. And he said it loud enough. We're told that, that apparently some of his own followers heard this and they started to follow Jesus. And we get the impression when we read the text there in, in John chapter 1 that like they are almost following Jesus like little kids following a celebrity. It reads like this in verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? 
They said, uh, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And here's the point. I don't want you to miss it. Again, because it's so simple, it would be really easy to do. Jesus knew family began with a simple invitation to come with him to be a part of what he was already going to do. Jesus started this new family with a simple invitation to come and be with him, come and go with him where he was already going. Jesus didn't design some elaborate program for them. He didn't preach them a sermon about what his condo looked like or who his neighbors were. He simply invited them to come and be with him. He invited them into his life. He said, you want to know me? You want to know about me? You want to know where I'm staying? You want to know, you know where, I'm, where I'm going? You want to know if what John said about me is true and reliable? You want to know if that's concrete and foundational, if he can be trusted? Come, follow me, and you'll see. In his book, Inviting Along, Jason Dukes writes, We can study about the commands of God and the teachings of Jesus, but a living word comes alive through everyday life experiences with people. Our selfishness is usually not exposed and called to accountability in a lecture from a master teacher. Rather, it is exposed and called to accountability in friendships that are centered on the master teacher. We learn enduring love, conflict resolution, gracious forgiveness, and compelling compassion in the midst of relationships, not in the midst of a classroom. Making disciples, in my opinion, is learning and living the ways of Jesus together as believers in the context of relationship while inviting along with us those who have yet to believe. See, it may seem anticlimactic, but actually it's just simple. This is real life. That's how Jesus' new family got started. He called the men who would later become his first disciples to follow him. He gave them a simple invitation to join him where he was already going. But from there, make no mistake, from there, literally everything changed. Like you see this snowball coming down the side of a mountain and it's coming down fast. One of the guys that uh, that Jesus meets at the beginning there is Andrew. And we're told this in verse 41. It says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. We're going to touch on that here in a second. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. 
Come and see, said Philip. And again, here, again, I don't want you to miss this. Hear this. Notice that there isn't preaching going on. Right? These guys don't sit down and do a devotional with their friends. They simply invite them to come along. Yes, there would be a time for teaching. I mean, Jesus is going to do a whole lot of teaching. He's going to do a whole lot of unpacking of the Scriptures. But discipleship, this new family, began with an invitation to come and see. And the chapter ends with this suspicious Nathaniel meeting Jesus and absolutely marveling at him. Jesus' response is, is it's amazing. He says, you haven't seen anything yet, Nathaniel. And at this point, Jesus started building his new family. And what we're going to see in a second is, then he gives them the mission. From here, we've been in John chapter 1, and we've been seeing things through John's eyes. We've been getting his perspective. But what I want to do is I want to shift to Luke chapter 4, where we pick up kind of the same story, but from Luke's vantage point. We're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. It says this, Then Jesus returned to Galilee. Remember, we, we were going to touch on that a second ago. He was leaving for Galilee in John. Now, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, now, just think about this. Jesus, he's in his hometown. He knew them, and they knew him. They knew his father, and they knew uh, his family. And up to this point, they like what they've heard. Jesus has pleased them. They, they like what they see. They, they like what they've heard. And Jesus could have very easily rolled up that scroll. He could have sat down. He could have maintained the status quo, and he could have kept the peace. But what we will see in just a second is that his mission was too great to keep his hometown happy or to keep his relatives rejoicing. His mission was too important to maintain the status quo or just settle for keeping the peace. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet 
Not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. You see, God sent Jesus on a mission that crossed boundary lines and crossed bloodlines. Jesus is saying, God hasn't just sent me to redeem our family. God has sent me to redeem every family. Look at his pattern in the Old Testament. He cares about widows in Sidon as much as he cares about you. He cares about the sick in Syria as much as he cares for us. This is the part of the, the narrative where we can breathe a sigh of relief and we can exhale because we read this as Gentile people, right? What Jesus has said is, hey, Jewish family, God cares about Gentiles as much as he cares about us. And by and large, those of us in this room, we're Gentiles. And so we hear this, we read it, and we're like, oh, lucky day. God loves us. God cares about us. Pat ourselves on the back. We breathe our sigh of relief. But it's here where we have to be really careful because we could miss the point. It's here that we see that God cares about the people that are outside of our family too. I'm not talking about the folks that just might happen to go to another church. I'm talking about people who are nothing like us. He cares about people who are outside of our comfort zones, outside of our safe spaces, outside of our comfortable places. He cares for people that we would never believe that God would want to have anything to do with. For the Jews, it was the Gentiles. A good Jewish person would believe that God would never want to have anything to do with a Gentile because they were dirty. They were disgusting. They were unclean. They were repulsive. God would never want to have anything to do with them. For the Jews, it was the Gentiles. For us, it's probably not the Gentiles. It's probably somebody in a different category. But again, it's somebody that we'd expect God would want to have anything to do with. Maybe it's terrorists. Maybe it's child molesters. Drug dealers. I don't know. You, you pick. But the fact of the matter is, God desperately wants to have a relationship with the worst kind of people. He wants them to join his family, and he sent Jesus to make it possible. We see that what's important to Jesus is not your DNA. It's whether you trust and obey. We don't need to share the same blood because we share Jesus' blood. He's created this new kind of family, and our mission is to step out of our comfort zones, outside of our familiar places, outside of our safe places, and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And the freeing thing about the way that Jesus did ministry, the way that Jesus approached discipleship, is that you don't need to come up with elaborate ways to reach people. You just need to be willing to invite people along into what you're already doing. People who are already in your orbit, already uh, in your circles of influence, invite them along. Come and see. Come and be with me. Come and get to know Jesus while you hang out with me. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples will happen in this room, on this property, a fraction of the time. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples is going to happen way more frequently at the YMCA while your kids play ball, spending time with other parents. It's way more likely to happen at El Nepal or Cracker Barrel or one of the restaurants that we gather in to have dinner. 
Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples is going to happen in the ice cream aisle at Walmart. It's going to happen in the waiting room of the doctor's office or the lunchroom of your work. It's in these kinds of places where our lives brush up against the lives of others. And if we're intentional about seizing these opportunities and inviting these people into our lives, we will soon be able to speak into theirs with truth and grace to share our struggles, to share our pain, our questions. And yes, even our victories. Victories that are made possible because of the greatness of Jesus. Disciples are going to be made while we're watching Little League baseball games, while we're sitting around campfires roasting marshmallows, while we're shopping for shampoo and slippers at Walmart. It's in these places where opportunity abounds if we will shift our focus from ourselves, from our grocery lists, from just enjoying the game or just roasting the marshmallows to the mission that we've been given by our Father, the King. Why? We, we will not be able to stop making disciples who make disciples who make disciples if we do this if we will seize these opportunities, if we will look at the opportunities around us with new eyes, we won't be able to stop making disciples. Why? Well, it's easy. Because that's what God desires for us to do. He sends His Spirit to empower us so that this is accomplished. If our focus is to glorify Him and worship Him in this way, we won't be able to stop making disciples. It will be as natural for us as breathing. But there's an important truth that we must each come to grips with. And it's uncomfortable. Jesus is all for us. But Jesus is not all about us. Jesus is all for us, but Jesus is not all about us. I am not the main character in my life's story. Jesus is. You are not the main character in your life's story. Christ is. Jesus is all about God. Pleasing Him meant pursuing us. Glorifying Him meant dying for us. If we want to be like Jesus, we must embrace His mission, selflessly pursue those who are far from Him, and invite them back into His family. Verse 28, And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Guys, the people around us are dying to belong because they were designed to belong. The people around us are craving a new kind of family because they were created by a family. Father, Son, and Spirit. The people of his hometown, no doubt people with whom he shared meals, shared history, even shared blood, allowed him to slip away. What will we do? 
If we choose to obey the mission that he gave us as he ascended into the heavens, we can be sure that we belong to him and he belongs to us, that we are members of his family and he will change the world through us. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So, what will you choose? Rest assured, the choice is certainly ours. If you've never obeyed the gospel command to repent of your sins and be baptized, you can do that today. You can identify with Christ because he first chose to identify with you. While you were still a sinner, while I was still trapped in my sins, steeped in it, he pursued us to reclaim us, to bring us back into a relationship with our Father, a relationship for which we were created. You can identify with Christ because he first chose to identify with you. You can put him on as your Savior. You can repent of your sins and begin to follow him. Be baptized. If you're ready to belong to a new kind of family and work together to accomplish the mission that we've been created for um, by our Father, by the King, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples by helping the people around us fall in love with the real Jesus. We'd love to have you in this family. We may not share the same blood, but Jesus' sacrifice has made that immaterial because we share his. So if you're ready to belong to a family, we'd love to spend some time with you talking about what that might look like.